After the death of Sicinius, the emperors resolved that none of that church should fill the vacant bishopric. They therefore sent for a stranger from Antioch, whose name was Nestorius, a native of Germanicea, distinguished for his excellent voice and fluency of speech, qualifications which they judged important for the instruction of the people. Being ordained on the 10th of April, he immediately uttered those famous words before all the people in addressing the emperor. Give me, my prince, the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you heaven as a recompense. Assist me in destroying heretics, and I will assist you in vanquishing the Persians. Now although these utterances were extremely gratifying to some of the multitude, who cherished a senseless antipathy to the very name of heretic, yet those who were skillful in predicating a man's character from his expressions did not fail to detect his levity of mind and violent and vainglorious temperament, inasmuch as he had burst forth into such vehemence without being able to contain himself for even the shortest space of time, and to use the proverbial phrase, before he had tasted the water of the city, showed himself a furious persecutor. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about the Council of Ephesus, or the Third Ecumenical Council. We are continuing our series through the Ecumenical Councils, looking at the major players, the historical background, and the theology that is developed from them. We're also looking at the contemporary implications for these councils and their teachings. But before that, it's time for gratuitous weather posting. Zellin, how are things in up north? Surprisingly warm, although I guess to the south of us, South Dakota is supposed to be getting a snowstorm this weekend, so still with the potential of, of getting some cold weather, but warmer than usual, I'll say that much. Almost pleasant. Yeah, it, 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 almost, <laughs> it feels like spring here, but we're due for some cold and rain again, so yeah, the farmers will get to plant eventually, I think. So maybe by the end of the month we'll see the we'll see planting happening. Yeah, I won't I won't be able to get a garden in probably at least until next month, but that's nothing unusual for me. So right. well we have a few things sprouted in one of the spare rooms, uh, just waiting to go into the ground when we can. But sure. you know it's part of it. <laughs> we here at Word Fitly would like to admonish you all to home garden. <laughs> you know, just for the reliance thing. It's not really a you know, it has nothing to do with a certain CTCR document. It's more just, it's just good for you. Your food will actually have flavor again. You get the satisfaction <laughs> of actually working the soil. You understand the fall of Adam better, quite frankly, if you do some light farming. So, you know, think about it. Think about it. Maybe we'll do a podcast on that soon. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to see what happens. So, fair enough. Yeah. Remember, folks. Too much technology erodes values. You know, get out there and get your get your hands dirty every now and then. It's good for you. So anyway, uh, <laughs> Council of Ephesus. Now, once again, let's just briefly go over why we're studying the councils. Well, the reason why we study the councils in the depth that we do is to understand the conflicts that the patriarchs were going through, how they came to the realizations that they did, and the struggles they had to go through. Because when you kind of relive their struggles, you can understand and not take for granted things that we have from them, like the creeds or things that we have, like why we are against Nestorius, for example, which is the, the major point of the third ecumenical council. 
So having a better grasp of history is going to help us to apply it to today. Yeah, certainly. And that Nestorian thing we're going to talk about, you know, how it develops. We'll, we'll, we'll ask the question of whether or not it's present in the church today once we get there. But let's set the stage. Who are the, first of all, where is Ephesus? Ephesus is on the far western coast of what is now modern Turkey. Paul writes a letter, of course, to the Ephesians in Ephesus. So it's an important city and a trade city. And because it was so central to trade like that, that's why the council was held there. It was kind of a place where everybody could get to in the east. But it, yeah, so it's an important, important Greek city on the coast. Very good. Now, what does, let's say, the empire look like at this point? The empire at this point, it's kind of a long story, and we'll kind of go through all of it here. But under Theodosius, who we met in our previous episode on Constantinople, and I would encourage listeners to go back and to listen to that. That's Theodosius I, uh, Emperor of Rome. Emperor of the Unified Empire. There we go. He's the last emperor to be the emperor of the Unified Empire. After him, his son's taking over, it's going to divide, and the West is slowly going to fall into decline until it finally falls shortly after the, the Council of Ephesus itself. So this is a period of decline for the Western Empire, but the Eastern half of the empire is still on the, the uprise, and it will continue on for centuries. But yeah, so that's kind of where we're at in terms of the, the overall picture. All right, so we have Theodosius. Uh, who are some other major players here? Theodosius himself, as if you remember from our previous episode, is involved with a, a great number of wars, especially with the Goths who are brings into the empire. One of the things that he's struggling with as part of bringing the empire together and holding it together and all of these peoples moving around within it is there's a lot of pretenders who are, who are trying to claim the Western throne. One of these guys is a guy by the name of Manius Maximus, which I think is the best name in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like, great the greatest. I mean, this, this guy has got quite the name. He ends up basically making himself into a co-emperor by usurping himself in the West. Because if you remember Valentinian from the previous episode, his son, Gratian, who is emperor at the time, is not very well liked. And because he's not very well liked, they actually, the troops actually acclaim a Valentinian's four-year-old son, yes, four-year-old son, Valentinian II, to be emperor after his father dies in the year 375. So this is a perfectly legitimate way to become an emperor, but the, the boy is only four years old. And so Maximus takes advantage of this and basically you know, forces himself into becoming emperor. This kind of agitating continues on, and eventually he'll actually force Valentinian II out of Milan in the year 387, and then Theodosius will go over and try to put things back into order in, the, in 388. So this kind of internal struggle, this kind of external struggle is kind of characterizes the whole period. Not only is society as a whole crumbling, but it's in part due to this leadership the succession crisis that we're dealing with, right? Right. So that leads to political instability, which leads to broad instability throughout the empire. There's also the issue of the Goths. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, the Goths, the Germanic troops, who have become more or less a part of the empire, which nobody really likes. They're even serving as troops in the Roman armies. And one of the reasons I think Rome is actually falling is because they're increasingly relying on this kind of foreign military force. 
But because of that, they are becoming more and more involved. We encounter a figure by the name of Alaric. He is the leader of the Visigoths, which is one of the divisions of the Goths, and was originally serving under the Roman banner as, as one of their leaders. But at a particular battle, Theodosius was involved. He's not really recognized for his service. And as a result, he basically revolts and causes the, the Goths to rise up and to begin to ravage the Eastern Empire. Well, I'd like to unpack that a little bit, how foreign troops lead to crisis in the empire. So would you say that the, that the differences between the tribes are so significant that that's what leads to these difficulties? That the Gothic approach to life is completely different from the Roman? Yeah, and it was it was recognized as such. I mean, they were always, I mean, they're not citizens. Rome has had universal citizenship since the days of Caracalla, so at least for a couple hundred years by this point. But the Goths themselves are not citizens. And so because of that, there's always this tension of they're not really one of us. And because of all the agitation that's going on and because of all the battles that have gone on between the Goths and the Romans, they don't really get along all that well. Is it fair to, to describe them as just mercenaries for Rome? Yeah, I mean, they are settled within the empire. The Gothic peoples are within the borders of the empire. I mean, because they're mercenaries and because they're so wrapped up in their own identity, they never really incorporate into the empire. They don't assimilate into the empire, which leads to... Which leads to them revolting. I, it is legitimately one of the reasons why the Western Empire will fall. I mean, there's lots of reasons. It's not the only reason, but it is legitimately one of the reasons. Lacking homogeneity actually leads to the fall of the Roman Empire, which is kind of an interesting thing. You, you need that shared culture in order to, to survive. Right. This is what leads to Israel losing the temple, you know, <laughs> the first right. time. Right. It's a process we see really all throughout history. It's an interesting thing. It's just sometimes a little easier to discuss when we're talking about ancient Rome. So anyway, let, let's move on then, look at some more of the key players here as we work our way up, almost up to the ecclesiastical folk. Theodosius has two sons, Arcadius and Honorius. Honorius is much younger than his brother Arcadius. He becomes the emperor of the West eventually, after all of this scuffle kind of gets settled out. And Arcadius is proclaimed Augustus in the East in the year 383. Maybe just as a little, little some side notes about Theodosius, uh, one of the most famous things that happens to Theodosius is his confrontation with Ambrose over a massacre that he orders in the year 390. Basically, what had happened was is there was this scuffle going on in Thessalonica involving a popular charioteer. Basically, a sports riot was going on. The commander there, a Gothic commander again, imprisons the guy, and the people want his release. They end up killing the commander. Theodosius kind of overreacts, orders a massacre, and 7,000 people are killed as a result. So even for all the good that Theodosius did, he did have slips. What makes this situation so interesting, though, is that when he comes to Milan again in Italy, basically the following year, Ambrose, who is the bishop of the city, actually bars him from entering the church. He basically excommunicates him, and Theodosius remarkably submits. It takes him several months to do it, but he submits to Ambrose's decision. Yeah, it kind of bursts a bubble in the whole, we should be giving war criminals communion because reasons, you know, the, the defense that some people trot out. <laughs> Ambrose was not a fan of such things. 
he didn't back down. I mean, you're literally dealing with the leader of the Roman Empire who's taken on, I mean, who still has a kind of quasi, you know, divine right kind of character to him. And you're basically saying, look, fam, you can't come in here until you repent. This isn't the first time Ambrose does something like this. Ambrose has a history of just really not caring who you are. <laughs> it's it's great. He might have been the first Scotsman. I don't know. <laughs> An Italian Scotsman. Well, this, you can't <laughs> Some of us have dark hair. But anyway. <laughs> so what happens from here? So Theodosius finally dies in the year 395. And Arcadius, whom we're going to follow a lot more closely, is the emperor in the east. Now, unfortunately, both of the sons of Theodosius are weak-willed, very pliable kind of men. They're nothing like their father, unfortunately, and they're always being dominated by somebody else. And so this begins a period, kind of a dark period in Roman history, because Honorius is kind of a Haydenist. Arcadius, like I said, he's just, he's dominated by a series of generals. He's even dominated by his wife, Eudoxia. But anyway, his son, Theodosius II, is born in the year 401. Now, during this time, Alaric, who we mentioned earlier, is still kind of causing a lot of havoc in the empire. Because after he's been harassing the eastern part of the empire, Arcadius tries to placate him by giving him a position in the army again. Basically making him like general of the armies in that part of the world. Which is kind of a weird thing to do. And I think kind of shows something of Arcadius's character. But... Alaric continually tries to harass and eventually invades Italy until he finally sacks Rome itself, virtually destroys the city in the year 410. The importance of that event cannot be underemphasized. I mean, we can't overstate it, that Rome has finally been sacked again after hundreds and hundreds of years of being the queen of the world. Honorius, who's the Western emperor, it shows something of how terrible of an emperor he was because he had a rooster that he called Rome. And when he hears about the fall of Rome, he says, kind of very tellingly, yet it just ate from my hands. He thought they were talking about his pet rooster. He had really no concern for the city <laughs> itself, which I think is kind of hilarious and kind of sad all at the same time. Right. Well, the history of the sons of great men tend to bear out this way often, do they not? Uh, sadly, it's true. I mean, you have the sons of Samuel, for example. Right. The sons of great men rarely live up to their fathers because their lives are just so just so much easier, I guess. I don't know. I don't know really why that, that seems to be a rule, but it certainly is at play here, especially in the sons of emperors, I suppose. And they're, they're born in the purple, too, which is never going to be in a, a good thing. Because when you have a hereditary monarchy, which is what the, the emperor is becoming in Rome, very often, because they are raised as, you know, knowing that they are the future emperor, it doesn't really fit them for the office. You know, unlike when you have a general who's raised from the ranks and who's acclaimed emperor, he sure, knows yeah. what it means to be a leader. But, you know, when you basically grow up in soft clothing. Absolutely true. But to really emphasize just how important this event was, though, in 410, this sack of Rome is actually the occasion of St. Augustine, who is alive at this time, to write his famous work, The City of God. And I know, Willie, that you, you, you've you done a little bit more work on The City of God than I have. Do you want to remark on it? Well, we're going to have to do uh, three more podcasts just to, just to do that introduction, but <laughs> it's the Christian living in times of great turmoil and then the contrasting between that heavenly city and, and the earthly reality that we live in. 
Right. Study of God also is almost functions as a systematic theology too, if I can use that word. It's not properly, sure. but it kind of is in a way. If you look at the way Augustine uses his doctrine here, it's actually kind of brilliant in that way because it's a theological response to society and what is happening. Would that we wrote a little bit more theology like that. It's it's not theology just kind of out there. It's theology attached to concrete events. And I think it, because of that, becomes more significant and, frankly, much more clear. At least the importance of it becomes more clear in that light. Sure. And plus, Augustine, you know, kind of a big deal. Apologies to any <laughs> of our Orthodox listeners. <laughs> but, it's, but, but for us in the West, he's kind of, he's the guy. He's the guy to go to. Well, and because a lot of the pagans who are still around at this time were saying, like, see, see, if right. we were still yeah. worshiping the, the pagans' gods, you know, this never this would have happened. happened yeah. <laughs> and Augustine's like, come on, guys. Several centuries later, the Spanish Empire would prove that theory absolutely wrong. <laughs> so, so all right. Well, we're almost up to the break, so we'll we'll save the church figures for the other side. Do you have any final remarks on these historical players before we take a break the only thing just well, like like you say we'll get to the church figures but for the the political side and the important thing to note is arcadius himself dies in the year 408 at which point his son theodosius ii succeeds him uh, even though he's only eight years old theodosius ii will be the emperor who's in charge of the council of ephesus who convokes it and calls it together so we'll talk a little bit more about him on the other side of the break Sounds good. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zell, and Heidi talking the Third Ecumenical Council. So we've looked at most of the major civil characters. Now let's move into a discussion of the church figures. The first notable character we have to talk about is Chrysostom, right? Yes, John Chrysostom, one of the most famous preachers in all of history, literally the golden-mouthed. Noted for his eloquence and his ability to speak well. We've talked about him before on this podcast, but he comes to Constantinople and becomes bishop there in the year 398. And Chrysostom himself, we don't have a lot of time to talk about him, and you can kind of chip in what you want here, Willie. He's described by historians as kind of an austere man, maybe a little bit proud. 
he's also not afraid to speak his mind like at all <laughs> which gets him into trouble on several occasions like he basically outright preaches against the empress eudoxia on one occasion which is quite impressive if you consider that he's basically blasting the emperor's wife right so he's not afraid to say what he wants yeah yeah he'll he'll put he'll put her on notice he doesn't care he'll patrol her he, he doesn't care <laughs> Basically, so, basically, quiet down, Eudoxia. It's enough. Quiet down. And again, Herodias dances. I mean, that was literally his sermon. Yeah, and even then, even in his contemporaries have to admit what a great orator he is, even though nobody wants to hang out with him. Well, he didn't really hang out with anybody either. He was kind of a loner. But <laughs> right. Because of his boldness, he ends up getting exiled once. He's brought back quickly. And then he's exiled a second time, again, after he's blasting the Empress. And it's on that second exile that he actually dies. There's a, a small riot that falls his expulsion from the city, but he dies in the year 407. We should come back to Chrysostom some other time. There's a lot to say about him, but that's all we can really say right now. On his death in the year 407, he's succeeded by a man named Arsacius. And Arsacius uh, was actually one of his opponents, one of the guys who was involved with getting him expelled, and he dies shortly afterward. And one of the historians at the time mentions that maybe God was judging him as a result, but that's neither here nor there. Arsacius is succeeded by Atticus. Atticus, as a bishop, is well known for his piety, even by even among the heretics who were still in and around Constantinople at the time. But with Talking about Atticus, we need to step away from Constantinople for a bit and actually travel quite a way south down to Egypt, to the city of Alexandria, where we meet a rather interesting character by the name of Cyril. What do you want to say about Cyril, Willie? Well, you know, can anything good come from Alexandria? You know, there's a pattern. There's a pattern that we see over and over again. He is one of the greatest theologians of the church, but obvious, but honestly, one of the most complicated figures when it comes to his personality. Do you think that's fair? Oh, that's that's more than fair. I mean, we call him Saint Cyril because um, his writings on the two natures of Christ will help to define Christology in a way that is going to be enshrined at Chalcedon and becomes a part of what it means to be orthodox. We cannot overstate his importance as a theologian, but he's an extremely complex character because he's a very brash, bold kind of man. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty when it comes to trying to get what he wants. And I think that's where a lot of the, the conflict that the Third Ecumenical Council has, a lot of it is going to come because of his personality and because of he always wants to have his way and he's not afraid to use even seemingly underhanded ways to get it. And I think the one of the best examples of this comes even before the council itself, there was a riot, as there always was in Alexandria, because Egyptians were always a contentious people. They were always fighting about something. And we'll see that going into the future as well. And the prefect of the city, a man by the name of Orestes, actually puts down the revolt. There was also a Jewish riot going on at the time. Cyril evicts the Jews. He expels them from the city. Orestes doesn't like this, and he tries to oppose his actions, but Cyril protests and persists in his actions, and eventually sparks a number of riots in the city. And Orestes is nearly killed. And so you can already see how it's kind of becoming very 
dark and kind of shady about, you know, who, who Cyril actually is. And during one of these riots, a woman, a very important woman by the name of Hypatia, who is an important Neoplatonic philosopher, which is kind of interesting because women weren't usually philosophers even in those days, she's murdered. And one of the questions was always, you know, well, who caused her to be murdered? Now, if you believe men like Carl Sagan in recent days, or even like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, following in the steps of Sagan, they would say that, you know, Cyril actually ordered the murder. But I don't think that's true, because the only source that even gives that kind of an idea is a guy who is actually against Cyril and against Christianity in the first place. This murder has always kind of been a sticking point for Christian relations. Well, it's a it's a silly argument. Okay, so let's let's see, let's entertain the notion. Let's say just for the sake of argument that Cyril did order it. What would that even prove? Okay, fine. I if I can find one naturalist convicted of murder, then I guess that makes Neil deGrasse Tyson's worldview just as bankrupt, right? Right. If only right an atheist yeah. that led to mass murders or or anything like that, you know. But as we know, there are no examples of that in history. Naturalism has led to just peace and prosperity. We're all we're living in bubble cities now. You know, it's great. It's a, it's just a utopia with flying cars. It's all the fifth element. <laughs> it's one of these. Tro- it's just like the Galileo trial. People just repeat things about it that aren't entirely true, and it's only just a signal. It's a tip of the old fedora to their crowd to bring this up. Right. I don't want to dismiss them so easily, but in this case, I it's it is easy to do. So a case like this, where things are murky, which, as you say, only one person, you know, we only get the account from one person who is an enemy of the bishop. Right. You know, it's just odd that of all the things to stick, that that becomes. And we were kind of talking about this in between between break. In the new, I think it's the new Cosmo show, or one of Neil deGrasse Tyson's newest one, they actually have an animated retelling of this of this story. Right. And then I believe you mentioned the burning of the Alexandrian library. They, they want to place on Christians right. as if Christians are the ones who destroy knowledge instead of actually developing it and building the West upon it. Well, because it, it, it's always the, the tired argument that the church is anti-science and that we hate, you know, the idea of knowledge. And we're just kind of dragging our knuckles on the ground as we try to drag our women back to the cave or something like that. But then reality, if it was not for the church, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are today. Absolutely. And all we're doing now is regressing. We have, you know, thanks to the microchip and then the earlier transistor, technology moved rather fast. So we have a lot more conveniences, but we're actually, we're regressing as a people thanks to this stuff because the very technology that we're supposed to praise the almighty scientist for has turned us into just babbling animals. And we we treat each other like animals and and we... Women are not valued. Men are not valued. People, other people are just commodities to be bought and sold, pieces of meat. If anything devalues someone, it's the philosophy behind men like Carl Sagan. And I know he's been made into a saint by a lot of people. And Cosmos is a groundbreaking show in its time. We want to give it its proper place in television history. But what has this worldview given us that's, that's worth even holding on to? Even the the early great medical advances are are by Christians, or at least people who exist in a Christian world. And I'm speaking in the modern era here. So it's just just all nonsense. People buy into it, and that's why we do 
podcasts like this that delve into history so much to try to show you, no, the church does have a brain that God has given it. The church does have sanctified reason. The church can do good things because of it. And, and really, we need Christ. We need God in order to excel in these things. We just begin to degrade when we when we leave him out of it. Amen. Yeah. And apologies to Carl Sagan, because he is, you know, dead. I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but it is what it is. It is what it is. We have to, we have to mention it, so. All right, after that rant. Oh, it was good, though. So who's the next big player here? Well, and then we kind of come to the crux of the issue, because now going back north to Constantinople, we begin the actual immediate events of the council with the death of Atticus in the year 425, and he's followed by a man named Sicinius, very contentious election, in the year 427. But because they didn't want to have any more animosity in the city, they look to an outside figure and bring in a man by the name of Nestorius. Now, I find that to be incredibly interesting that Nestorius is the heretic in question here, but he is actually the bishop of Constantinople in the year 428. So much for, you know, Episcopal polities being the savior of everything. Bishops can be corrupt. Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, whoever is in power doesn't necessarily reflect the truth of Scripture. And that's a tough pill to swallow. And it certainly doesn't mean that they are, orthodoxy aside, it certainly doesn't mean that they're pious people. You know, that's that's something hard for us to swallow, because we want to believe that orthodoxy and piety must necessarily exist together, but you can have a paper orthodoxy and an absolutely right. wicked life. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I guess, oh, yeah. I guess the converse is you could all, or you could also have you know horrible theology and live a civil, civilly upstanding life. Yeah. <laughs> but the other one troubles me more to be willing to just cling on to that paper orthodoxy and not demand more out of a out of a bishop of the church. We want to demand both that he be both right. wise teacher but also example, and that's the biblical picture of the shepherd, is it not? So, well, let's talk about Nestorius before we get into his theology. What was he like as a man? Interestingly enough, he was kind of at first a, what we might describe as a violent persecutor of the heretics. He's kind of a, a hammer of the heretics kind of a man. He really wants to be orthodox, and he really wants to be the guy who's doing the right thing. Because of his zeal, he actually... Is that's what I think leads him into his heresy, because uh, by the end of 428, so not very long after his appointment, he brings in some of his priests under him, and one of them actually begins openly preaching against using the term Theotokos with reference to the Virgin Mary, or God-bearer, the mother of God. The quote that was kind of reported this guy saying was, let no one call Mary Theotokos, for Mary was only a human being, and it is impossible that God should be born of a human being. Okay, and Nestorius supports him to a fault. He basically starts going on a rampage against the use of the term at all, and even publishing sermons preaching against its use. Now, as we're going to talk about here, this isn't just a question of what we think about Mary, because it's actually a question of what we think about Christ, but this is what gets Cyril out of Alexandria wrapped up into the debate. I find this particularly interesting because it, the information seems to travel, and the final solution is there really relatively quickly, because Nestorius, if I'm not mistaken, is only patriarch of Constantinople for three years or so. 
Yeah, not very long. I mean, and in those days, yeah. that's a pretty quick, you know, that that's pretty quick action on something. Yeah, if and that he didn't die, <laughs> right? You know, right. Have a short one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, if you remember, the council itself is going to take place in the year four hundred and thirty-one, three years down the road. I mean, it's not that long, right? And he'll be in exile after it. So yeah, so you're right. Word is traveling fast. Yeah, and maybe that's just because Cyril is behind it, and he's going to really hammer this. So, oh yeah. So now this is interesting. So this is why they they summon some two hundred and fifty odd bishops. Now there are a few other things going on, but this is the issue to discuss. Right, and it's almost something that if we heard it today, many Christians would think it was just nitpicking that they're just sure. splitting hairs. But we ought to reflect on the attitude of the bishops of this of that day. Why is this so significant? They understood it immediately. The the ramifications of this. You know, just just to point out here, this this isn't something that even though I think for the average Christian out there hearing this, they wouldn't understand. There would just be some kind of minutia for theologians. But this this doctrine becomes I mean, it leads it's going to lead to a schism right. uh, that really exists until this day. This is an important point because like I said, this isn't just nitpicking over what we say about Mary. This is actually a question of what we say about Christ. And if we're going to talk about Christ, we have to consider, you know, what is right and what is wrong, because the consequences could be dire. You know, if we get Christ wrong, you're dealing with the heart of what it means to be saved. Right. And ultimately, the doctrine of Mary as the mother of God is not so much confession about Mary. It's a confession about the person of Jesus Christ. Right. And so we don't want to get that. And of course, it's going to be linked to his mother because he actually is born into the way he is a man. Who right. who is also right. God? <laughs> so, but we don't want, we don't want to quite unpack this just yet. Before we yeah, before we dig into the theology of it, and we really should kind of unpack all of it. I want to go through the events of the council itself because that is a very convoluted thing. This is not <laughs> nearly as clean and as neat as the previous two councils have been. Basically, Cyril starts writing letters to. Nestorius talking about what he you know what he believes to be the truth about Christ. His second letter that he writes, and I would actually encourage people to find this letter and to read it, because it does actually become an important point for Chalcedon and also for this council as well, really very nicely defines what it means for Jesus to have two natures and yet be one person. But after writing this letter, Cyril actually moves to involve Pope Celestine the first in this controversy. Celestine is in Rome at the time. This is the same Celestine, and I, I wish we could spend more time on this, who battles the issues of Pelagianism in Britain at the time, and he also deals with the issues of Novatianism, but that is far beyond our, our well, topic at hand. Now, this is germane to the discussion, though. Why does he appeal to the Pope? He appeals to the Pope because he's looking for a way to deal with because the, the Bishop of Constantinople at the time is considered almost as an equal to the Pope. And so it, it really does become an issue of who is going to be the greater authority. And Cyril appeals to the Roman Bishop as a way of dealing with the Bishop of Constantinople in New Rome and involves him as a way of saying, okay, I appealed to this guy, so you need to, to toe the line. Right. So he, here in the 400s, the Bishop of Rome has not quite set himself up over the church yet. There's still very much the idea that the various patriarchs are bishops of equal standing. Right. I mean, is that, you think that's a fair assessment? 
I think it is. I think there's definitely movement towards the the uh, Bishop of Rome becoming kind of the the first. But do you think that's a geographical thing more than a theological thing? Like the theological significance is attached later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even well, even at the last at the previous council in Constantinople, they said Rome is first, Constantinople is second because it's new Rome. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a strange thing, but you know, it, 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 as Lutherans, it's kind of an important discussion for us. The Pope and all that, papal supremacy and whatnot. <laughs> but as we've already established, doesn't really matter because a bishop can still be absolutely a heretic, as in the case right. of Constantinople. Celestine is probably at least a little, uh, quite a bit more orthodox, so we can get oh, certainly, for that. certainly. I'm just thinking in terms of old Nestorius here. Okay, so Cyril, unfortunately, because of his agitating, because he's always getting up in everybody's business, Theodosius, who is considered to be a very pious emperor, almost monastic in his piety, calls for a general council. But a lot of people think that it's going to be dealing with Cyril, not necessarily Nestorius, but but with Cyril, because he is such a, a shady, kind of murky kind of character. But Cyril, at this time, writes what is called the Twelve Anathemas, which is an important document where he basically lays out in no uncertain terms that anyone who holds to Nestorius's points is a heretic. I mean, in and just in those kinds of terms, if you hold this, you shall be anathema, you'll be thrown out of the church. This is a very controversial document, it will continue to be so even after the council. But the council itself is convoked at Ephesus to begin on Pentecost, June 7th, 431. Do you want to get through the rest of the council in this section, Willie? Yeah, or do let's you wanna... go ahead and do it. We're, you know, we're here. We're a little over time, but, you know, we got some good energy going. Well, I do I do think it's interesting. So you, you have a bishop here of Constantinople, but the bishop of Alexandria has condemned him. And right. you're actually seeing something similar play out in Orthodox churches today with the whole issue of autocephaly for the Ukrainian church. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So these issues still exist today, and, you know, who has the right to do this? Is there really ever one bishop overall? And and really, it's actually dealing with the Bishop of Constantinople right now, or the Patriarch of Constantinople. Right. So that's interesting. But anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> but as it is. So Cyril and Nestorius arrive at Ephesus, and there is no love lost between them. They don't really talk to each other. Their followers kind of heckle each other. And so 160 excuse me, 160 bishops are in attendance. But unfortunately, because of the realities of travel at the time, some of them can't come, like in Africa. And some of them, like uh, John of Antioch, who's a friend of Nestorius, is delayed. And Augustine, unfortunately, has died the previous August. So press F for Augustine. I don't have enough uh, keyboard keys for that. I know, I know. <laughs> so Augustine was not in at the council. Theodosius himself is unable to attend. Theodosius II. So he sends an official in his place. And basically the idea is, is okay, not everybody's here yet. Let's wait. Let's make sure everyone's arrived so we can actually talk about this. Cyril, unfortunately, refuses to wait. He says, we're going to hold it. And who's here is, is here. And because he has this commission from the Pope, he convokes the council on Monday, June 22nd, 431. And even though Nestorius and his supporters are present, they're basically shown the door. I mean, they're they're not really allowed to be a part of the proceedings because Nestorius, maybe to his credit, refuses to be part of something where his accuser is also the one leading it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cyril, as Nestorius would later be quoted as saying, 
I was summoned by Cyril, who assembled the council, by Cyril, who presided, who was judge, Cyril, who was accuser, Cyril, who was bishop of Rome, Cyril, Cyril was everything. (laughs) This idea that because Cyril was in command of everything, Nestorius didn't want to have any part of it. And then the council itself basically went something like this. They recited the Nicene Creed. They read Cyril's second letter, and they all approved it. They read Nestorius's reply, and they all rejected it. <laughs> they may have read his third letter in the Twelve Anathemas. They're not really sure, but these weren't voted on. And then they finally excommunicate Nestorius. End of council. Well, end of this part of the council, I should say. Sure, sure. And then the best part is, maybe, maybe just before we go into break here, Nestorius is informed of this decision with a message that begins to the new Judas. I mean, that, I think that just kind of really puts the cherry on the top of it. Hey, Judas, this is what we decided. Right. Hammer that point home. <laughs> well, all right. So we should probably get to break now. And on the other side, we're going to talk about the doctrines of the Council of Ephesus. We'll be back with more theology posting here on Word Fitly Spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. And we are back talking the Council of Ephesus. So Nestorius is condemned, exiled, and I assume then that all controversy was done and it was a done deal and everybody went on about their lives, right? Well, that'd be nice to think, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, it's not quite that clean. What happens is, is Cyril, thinking that it's all done, sends his proceedings to Theodosius and John of Antioch, one of the bishops who was late, finally arrives on June 26. He doesn't like what's happened, and so he kind of convokes um, a rival council, kind of an anti-council of sorts, with Nestorius and 43 bishops present, and they basically anathematize and uh, excommunicate Cyril. So it's a gigantic mess, is what it is. And this all goes to the emperor, who finally sends a guy down on June 29th and says, Everybody stay put. We got to figure out what exactly is going on here. And so now, with all of this trying to figure out what's going on, some papal legates arrive from Rome, and they are obviously pro-Cyril, and they actually begin having additional sessions. And this is kind of where the bulk of the council actually takes place, is with the papal legates present. Papal legates being those who are authorized to represent the Pope at these councils. And so they spend the next month finalizing some canons, most of them anti-Nestorius. And when the emperor finally tries to get this all figured out, 
I mean, just to show how confused he was, he sends letters in August to this thing for men who aren't even at the council. I mean, the guy even had a letter for Augustine, for crying out loud. <laughs> this representative basically makes the amazing declaration that all of the decisions are going to be held valid until they can figure this out. So Cyril and Nestorius alike are going to be deposed. And Theodosius says, okay, I find I got to figure this out. I need to figure out what's going on. And so he calls them together and says, let's work this out. And that doesn't work either. So he finally dissolves the whole thing. Basically, what eventually happens is it kind of settles out where they come up with a formula of union that summarize that kind of eventually gets something that everyone except Nestorius can agree on. Even John of Antioch can agree on it. Nestorius himself is even willing to back off of his opposition to Theotokos, the, the mother of God term, as long as he quotes, you quote, understand it properly. But this is a compromise, even from Cyril, and Nestorius is finally exiled to spend his last days in, ironically, Egypt. <laughs> And Cyril himself dies in the year 444, and I think it's interesting that the Eastern bishops, who were kind of Nestorian-leaning, requested that a giant stone be put on his tomb so that he couldn't come back and cause more problems. <laughs> I, I think that's just a, a great story. However, I do want, before we talk about the theology, I do want to talk about where Nestorianism as basically where it went from this point. So do you want to add anything at this point? No, really? no, no, it's good. Let's go on. Let's see. Let's see what happens to the Church of Nestorius. Unlike Arianism, which died as a result of the first two councils. I mean, yeah, you could argue that it was kind of revived, but there was definitely a period in which it was dead. Nestorianism has always persisted throughout history. You see this primarily in non-Roman areas. It moves into Persia very early on. It's a formally accepted in the Persian among the Persians in the year 486, kind of as a a sticking point to like neener neener boo boo. Like we have these Christians that you don't like because Persia and Rome never got along. And Nestorian missionaries actually work far and wide, like in Arabia, for example, in Malabar, even as far away as China, which I think is extremely interesting because they discovered a stone near uh, Xi'an, China, which is in the western part of China, kind of in the, the more rural part today, which describes the arrival of Nestorian missionaries in the year 635. Hmm. So these guys are extremely active. They're getting out far and wide. So which is always why it's kind of interesting when you see those maps of like Christianity spreading through the world through time. Whenever you see that giant incursion into China, that's Nestorianism. <laughs> You know, and it goes back to this common meme we have that those guys with energy to go out and do it do actually win converts. They and that do. sounds, yeah. I mean, you know, take it with a grain of salt. I'm not advocating any kind of Pelagianism or anything like that. But it's just to say that as if just the work itself will get that. But that you will influence people, right or wrong, for good or ill. It's not just a neutral thing. Even though it's only God that gives entrance into the true church, we recognize that. At the same time, we are called to go out and to be missionaries because that is the way in which evangelism works. There are real consequences not only to false teaching, but also for failing to rightly teach and for failing to, to just teach in general. And, and the, as a last point here, to show that it actually still survives today, the two major church bodies which are fully Nestorian in their theology are what we call the Assyrian Christians, 
basically in what is what used to be a Syria, what is now largely modern day Iraq, I mean, that kind of area, I mean, generally in that part of the world. The two major bodies are called the Assyrian Church of the East and its more recent breakaway, the Ancient Church of the East, both of which are Nestorian in their theology. So this survives all the way through to the modern day with unbroken uh, continuous lineage. Well, since it has survived then, what is a Nestorian? What is going to be their distinctive? We we realize they reject Mary as the God-bearer or as the mother of God. Now, that's more than just rejecting a title. It's rejecting something about the nature of Christ. And what might that be? For an historian, they're struggling with how God and man can be united into one person, Jesus Christ. And I know we're using theological terminology here, but we kind of have to. They're, they're trying to figure out how it is that God can actually become incarnate. And so even though Nestorius argues for a kind of union, I mean, he doesn't believe that they're totally separate. He does believe in a kind of union. He just doesn't, he really doesn't want to, quote unquote, confuse them. He doesn't want them to be lost in each other. And he thinks that the only way that that can be done is if you basically keep them so far apart that there isn't a whole lot actually uniting them. The the metaphor that's often used, and it's a little bit of a caricature, but I think it's uh, in, instructive, is if we have like two boards which have actually been glued together. They're, they remain two boards, even though they're united into one, but they're they're still you know radically distinct. Yeah, from one so it, the idea is that you basically end up with two separate beings, two wills, two persons, two everything, so that what's come together is almost artificial. Right. Instead of, ha- it's a confused idea of a person. Uh, that, that's the big issue. I mean, obviously it's not what scripture reveals about him, but about Christ, uh, you know, but why is it a problem? Because it presents almost a dualistic concept of, of the Christ. And yet Nestorius isn't going to say that the two wills or, or that the two natures are not in harmony. I don't think he ever right. goes so far, but that is, you know what what you have there it becomes so so then it becomes a question of well why can't Mary be the mother of God because the natures are so separate that she can only be said to have born Christ the man right right the, the Jesus the man not his his divinity or or at best like the the union itself but not the divine nature i mean that's right. that's yeah, really yeah, why Nestorius yeah. chokes on it cuz he thinks that God cannot humble himself in such a way or like undergo what he conceives to be a change in order to be born of the virgin. Yeah, yeah, he can't change. Can he be localized? That sort of thing in that way. So that being said, Zelwyn, why does this matter? What, what what should we believe? Well, and of course, this is the question that's going to be continued to be settled at, at Chalcedon, which is going to be, of course, our next episode. But the reason why this is so important for us, and not just a little bit of theological minutia, like splitting hairs or whatever, is because if we misunderstand who Christ is in his, who he is, like I said, we are going to not get salvation right either. If he really is only, if he's two separate, completely separate natures that are just only somewhat bound together, well, then, you know, what's the point of the union in the first place? You know, could it be dissolved? Could it be... Right, right. Yeah. It, is it is it eternal? Is Are there limits placed upon his humanity the way we have limits? 
Right. And, and that's the real rub there. You know, to, what subsumes the other? We do preserve both natures, and yet there are attributes of the human nature that subsumed isn't the right word per se, but by virtue of his divinity, obviously Jesus Christ is capable of things that a regular man can't, and yet that does not diminish his humanity because we need both of those natures and we need them united for the sake of the incarnation and for the sake of our salvation. Yeah, because if if we don't have... Well, I mean, the, the way that I've often heard it explained, if you don't have the divine nature, how is it that Christ's death could accomplish anything? Then it would just be the death of a man. Well, how could it accomplish in perfection? Yeah. Or if Christ were only, you know, only a man and not divine at all, you know, I mean, it doesn't apply to anything. If he was just divine, how can it actually, how can he be said to suffer in our place? Yeah, and this is the way in which Christ makes things right. We're going to sound really Western talking about a rather Eastern controversy, I realize, but the righteousness of God must be satisfied. Right. Only God can achieve that level of righteousness. However, it must for it to be effectual for us for the incarnation and that rest and and its restorative function to be applied to us, it must be man, one man for men. And so you have to have both of those natures and they have to be united and not just artificially united. Jesus Christ is the God man. That cannot be separated. And the way in which the two natures coexist and are united is essential to our understanding of the incarnation, its purpose, and its effectiveness. To begin to chip away at these things, we'll lose everything. We'll, we'll find ourselves lost. Right. Or, or you're left with a view of the incarnation and the atonement that's only exemplary. Or, or you know, it's something very much reduced. Yeah, you you invariably lose something when you start to define it in these kinds of ways. Like, and and Nestorius's desire to preserve distinction between the two natures, he actually ends up cheapening the incarnation, right? Because then Christ doesn't really become man. (laughs) He just kind of he is, but he isn't. You know, I mean, it's just kind of they're they're both kind of there without really doing anything together. Yeah, yeah, it's not really that significant. So we talked about the churches in the East that still maintain, and we would say heretical churches in the East that still maintain a Nestorian doctrine. What about in the West? Do we see this crop up anywhere? In the Lutheran confessions, of course, we we very clearly say that we reject this position. And of course, this has always been a question of, you know, what it means to be an Orthodox Christian on the basis of this council. But I think the term does get bandied around a lot to scare people a little bit. I don't know. Who do we want to, I mean, where do you want to pin it down, I guess? Well, I think it's like a lot of Christological heresies. It's not intentional the way it is in the Assyrian Church of the East, where they're openly affirming this. I think people will be sloppy in their Christology and end up there sometimes. The Reformed churches are accused of Nestorianism. I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think you could say that they might come close to it or the way in which they conceive of kind of the separation between the two natures is dangerous. But to accuse them as far as their confessions go and not just one-offs by an author here and author there, I think is is a bit unfair. Calvin is very much aware of Nestorius, the Council of Ephesus, and what Nestorians believed, and he does reject it. So just being fair there. Now, the reason why they say that the Reformed come close to Nestorianism is because of this. Because 
let's say in Calvin's theology, right? The human nature of Christ is very much human insofar that it cannot biolocate, that the physical body of Jesus is occupying a set place in space somewhere. Okay. Right. And I don't mean that sounds silly, like an outer space or something like that, but it, it's occupying space. Why? Because he is a man. Men are physical beings. And to, and to be truly man, he cannot be in more, as far as his human nature is concerned, he can't be in more than one place at once. And so that division that they're making there is where they're sometimes accused of flirting with Nestorianism. Yeah, the the idea that part of what it means to be human is also to be limited in our sphere. Right. And as a result, if Jesus is truly human, he is in only one place. And it's not an irrational thing to say. It's just a question of trying to understand a mystery that we're not given. I know that sounds kind of cliched Lutheran, but it is true. Scripture affirms that Christ is bodily present. Apologies to you equivocators out there who don't want to affirm a local bodily presence for Jesus, but that is the doctrine. I'm, I'm not a cool enough theologian to, to disavow that with, with fancy language as some men who wear the collar might. We do believe that Christ is bodily, bodily present in the sacrament, right? On right. all the faithful altars, every divine service where there's the Lord's Supper. What do we do with that? Is he chopped up and then redistributed? Of course not. And yet, the testimony of Scripture is that this is Christ's true body and blood, and we cannot understand how that is possible. So, where our mind falters, where we cannot process how this happens, we bow to the testimony of Scripture. Correct. Yeah, and so that's what we're left to do. I understand what Calvin is trying to do, and I think it's a little bit noble in that way. He wants to preserve Christ as a man, as a truly human. And that is good, but he, in trying to explain this, he, he misses out on that unique presence of Christ in the sacrament for the forgiveness of sins, for the benefit of believers. Yes, but the, the key here, and I think what you're really trying to drive home is, Calvin's desire to preserve, I guess, the integrity, I, I don't know what word to use, of his human nature, the human nature of Christ, is not the same as what Nestorius is doing, which is why it's a little bit unfair. Sure. Yeah, it, and, and it's anachronistic. I mean, it's just not, it's just kind of a an epithet almost at this point. Which is why I said that it really is more often used as a term of abuse Absolutely. rather than a legitimate, a legitimate accusation. That's not to say that that you can't do that in with modern theology because say Jehovah's Witnesses are very much Arian explicitly in their conception of God. It's modified, but it's much more explicitly heretical. It's just to say let's give everybody a fair shake when we can, but while affirming the truth of Scripture here. Well, even even the people today, and I know this sometimes gets bandied around in certain circles where they'll actually reject the term Theotokos, you know, Mother of God. I find that to be most often a kind of anti-papal kind of reaction. Yeah, and we really need to, yeah, let's talk about, let's unpack that as we, you know, come to our last minutes here. Is Mary the mother of Godzilla? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How's that for unequivocal? There you go. Okay. Why? <laughs> because she is the mother of Jesus. She gave birth to God. I mean, it's it's not a hard concept. It's not saying that, that she in her womb produced God from all eternity either. 
Well, I mean, that, that's exactly the point. It's not that she creates God or that she was before God or that Jesus somehow had a beginning. She just gave birth to God. That's all it is. And I think where a lot of the, the reaction comes in is because you get people who come in and use that to elevate Mary to a position higher than she should be. Yeah. And I, I think that's where a lot of the, the rub comes in. Yeah. We don't want to put Mary into a false position, but that doesn't mean that we can't give her the honor that Scripture gives her as being the mother of God. And just a couple points here on the person of Christ. I always get a little antsy when people are like, well, Jesus does this as a man, and he does this as God, but then he does this as a man, and he does this as God. It's like, okay, now we've really gone off the skids here. Jesus simply does what Jesus does as Jesus, because you cannot separate those two. Does he ever cast aside... How do you want to put this? Attributes? Is he ever self-limiting? What do you think about that? Self-emptying kind of yeah, a thing? Yeah, yeah. I think I think as part of his humiliation, humiliation. Right, we would say that. And yet it's not the same as ceasing to be. No. Yeah. No. It's really like I have like Jesus, for example, knows all things by virtue of, of his divine nature, and yet he still learns. That doesn't mean that he like gave up knowing everything. It just means that because of who he has lowered himself to be like one of us. He actually does grow in stature and in learning and in knowledge. Scripture isn't lying when it says these things. We just have to accept them for what they Absolutely. are. So any last words? I mean, I know there are a couple of other canons, but they're not really germane to the discussion here. You know, don't depart from the creed of First Council of Nicaea is another one. And then there's, oddly, a condemnation of interfere of of interference by bishops of one jurisdiction in another jurisdiction. Yeah, like I said, I think that might be kind of on the nose at Cyril a little bit, but it, like I said, it's it's a convoluted mess. But what this is all going to lead to in a very short period of time, we're talking a space of only 20 years now, the shortest time between any council, any of the two councils, will lead to the events of Chalcedon, which cannot be overemphasized in terms of its importance for Christianity in general. And so we're going to be going on to Chalcedon and we'll actually be able to spend a lot more time with the theology of that because there's, well, a lot less history to impact. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you. And God bless. If all parties had been bent on conciliation, and had, without abating anything of the substance of their own convictions, made a genuine effort to understand one another, the task might well have been accomplished and the Nestorian and Monophysite schisms averted, at least on a serious scale. And Athanasius might have succeeded in consolidating Christian thought and preserving Christian unity. But neither Cyril nor Nestorius was an Athanasius. None of the chief figures combined his strong grasp of truth with his sympathetic penetration of the minds of others and his large-hearted charity. They lacked something essential to that great and exceptional synthesis of character. And so the battle was joined.